And you can turn over in your Bibles to the, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're taking a little break from John, and we are going to do it. just a couple of Christmas messages. Next week will be, in the morning, will be our last uh, service for the Christmas season anyway. And uh, we will not have a Christmas Eve service that night. We will have it in the morning. So we'll give free up that time for family and friends, and you can spend time with the Lord and with, with your loved ones. But uh, t- today I want to start just a little series, just two parts really, uh, entitled Our Down-to-Earth King, <laughs> Our Down-to-Earth King. And it's taken this morning, we want to look at Jesus' family Christmas tree. You say, Jesus had a Christmas tree? Well, sort of. <laughs> He had a family, a family tree at least. And so as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, uh, it's kind of an interesting message this week because it's not our typical Christmas message. It's, the series really is talking about the one who came down to us. Uh, and not only is he down literally from heaven, but he's down to earth in that he relates to us. Because he took on human flesh. He became like us, so you could say we be, could become like him. And that's very important. And that's really what the Christmas season is all about. And I think here's the reality I think that you understand and connect with this. One of the, the best parts of this holiday season, this Christmas season, getting together this Christmas time is family, right? right? (laughs) I think one of the best parts is the family time. But I'll let you know, it can also be one of the worst parts. (laughs) Amen? Just depending, right? Just depending. And uh, a lot of times it can go either way. And maybe many of you here this morning understand you get together with family, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, who's Who's going to show up? What remarks are going to be made? What past sins are going to be brought up at the table? Uh, Some of you get excited to get with family, and some of you are scared to death. You're terrified because we all know that within our families, all of our families, as we gather together, anything can happen. Um, we We all probably have that obnoxious uncle, that crazy cousin, that strange sister in law. That doofus brother-in-law, whatever it might be, we all have those kind of people in our extended family, right? right. I hope I'm not just talking about my own family. <laughs> and by the way, if you're, if you're sitting here right now and you're saying, well, I don't know, Pastor, I, I can't think of anybody in my family, it's you, okay? Wake up. It's you. You're the one. <laughs> so that's just how it works because as much as family time Christmas time is about families, and we also want to know, you know, that when our families get together, it's a blessed time, but we also, all of us have families that are broken. We all have families that are broken, families that are dysfunctional, families that have failures and and flaws and difficulties and struggles. And I start with that, because if that's you here this morning, and we all have a little bit of that. I mean, you know how difficult your family is, and Christmas time reminds you, really, of the family you came from. And I want you to know that Jesus understands. Jesus totally gets it, because he came from a very similar family. He came, you could say, from a broken family. He and his family really put fun and dysfunction. And that's what we're going to see here today as we look at the lineage of Jesus, the heritage of Jesus, his bloodline. He and his family were pretty messed up. And so if you're thinking sometimes at Christmas time, everybody thinks they're perfect. Every family's picture perfect. Guess what? It's not. It's not. We think everybody else is great you look on social media you look at the advertisements everything's perfect and it looks like everybody's family just has it all together and then you look at yours and like what happened <laughs> um, 
But guess what? We don't. We don't have it together. Nobody does. None of us do. And now, today, most of the time, when we open up the Gospel of Matthew and we begin to read, where do we start? We usually don't start in verse 1. I don't think I've ever heard a family get together on Christmas morning and say, well, let's, think, let's read the Christmas story. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse 1. Because the first 17 verses are what? It's a lineage. So-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so. And after a while you're just going, what in the world does this have to do with me? As a matter of fact, if you read this on Christmas morning, they'd probably kick you out of your family. <laughs> okay, because it's kind of boring. It's God's word, but it's not a very applicable text naturally as we look at it and i just want us to understand that sometimes that's how scripture is nobody wants to hear all the begats but this morning we're going to preach a boring sermon and we're going to preach on matthew 1 verses 1 through 17 basically you say what in the world are you going to do i don't know yet but we're kind of got an outline loosely and we're going to go through this together you're in this with me, right? And see, Matthew, what he wants us to understand here is that from a human point of view, humanly speaking, he wants us to understand where Jesus came from. This is why this is in there. It is Scripture. It's not a mistake. And maybe even more specifically, I think God, through Matthew, wants us to know who he came for. Not just where he came from, but who he came for. He wants us from the very beginning to see the family, to see the lineage, to see the bloodline, the history of the one who is the Messiah. And that's where he begins. And he starts in verse 1, and with 47 names of men and women, he begins to list the lineage of Jesus. Most of these people we never heard of. Most of them are hard to pronounce. Most of us, we don't know the story of. There's 47 names here. And we're going to look at all 47. No, just kidding. <laughs> but this is Jesus' family Christmas tree. This is Jesus' family Christmas tree. It's not like yours or mine, made of wood or maybe plastic, if it's a fake one or whatever, all sparkled up with lights, beautiful bulbs on it. Now, that's not the type of Christmas tree that Jesus had. His tree was made of people. Made of people. The ornaments on Jesus' Christmas tree are people. That's the tree that we have right here in the first 17 verses of Matthew. And we are seeing Jesus' family Christmas tree, and it's loaded down with names of people. And what we're going to find this morning is it's not loaded with people who are shiny. <laughs> It's not loaded with people who sparkle and are bright. Really, it's just the opposite when you look at this list of individuals. And so now the moment that you've all been dreading, and I've been dreading myself, but we're going to read the first 17 verses. And you can follow along in your Bibles. You can just remain seated this morning. It says, The, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, 
the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittio, whose son was Shekio, no, uh, and Shetio was father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ were 14 generations. Made it through it. Still with us. Let's bow, we're a word of prayer, and we'll close. No, just kidding. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this word of God. Lord, sometimes these names don't mean anything to us. I pray today that we'll practically look at this and see how this list applies to us. It does apply to us. It is your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move and work in the hearts of your people this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, probably halfway through that list, you were kind of zoning out a little bit, going, what in the world is he doing? Where is he going with this? See, here's the thing you have to understand with Scripture. This is very important. While all Scripture is equally inspired by God, not all Scripture is equally inspiring. (laughs) Right? I don't think you would read this list and say, okay, let's do a devotion. That'd be kind of hard. Okay, not every passage of Scripture, not every text within the confines of the Bible is meant to be a perfect Facebook post or a bumper sticker or some little slick thing you can memorize. And yet we have to go back and we have to understand why in the world did God put this here? Why is this long list of names starting this gospel? We all know the benefit of Scripture. Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is given for our benefit. It's to teach us. It's to rebuke us. It's to correct us. It's to convict us. It does all those things. Does that include these 17 verses? And yet most of us maybe have never even read it. We skipped over it. We go right down to verse 18 because that's where Jesus shows up. Because it's just a genealogy, we think. And it doesn't really mean anything to me personally. It's hard to apply to my own life. And yet I want to tell you this morning, I think it will apply to you if you'll listen. I know it applied to me this past week as I studied through this. And so I'm going to point out three simple things here this morning for us. Three simple things. This may be the last time we preach on this genealogy. You may be just saying amen, but let's see what we can get out of it, right? And maybe just today, if we listen and ask the Lord to help us, if we lean in and, and desire to God to speak to our hearts and attune our hearts, maybe there's something here for us that we've always missed. Maybe this morning, even this morning, God could speak to our hearts through this genealogy. Wouldn't that be amazing? I think it would be. So there's three things. First thing, Jesus' family Christmas tree has an important purpose. It has an important purpose. This is the very first thing. A lot of people don't realize that between your Old Testament and your New Testament, you have one of these. Just a piece of white paper. That white paper represents 400 years of silence. There was 400 years where God didn't speak through the prophets, through the priests. He didn't speak at all. 
400 years of silence. 400 years have transpired. Why would God be silent and say nothing to his people for 400 years? Do you ever wonder that? It's called the intertestamental time there. God is silent. Well, I can tell you it's not because he's mad. That's not the reason. I can also tell you it's not because he didn't have something to say. He's God, for goodness sakes, right? He always has something to say. Actually, it's just the opposite. He had something glorious to say. He had something glorious to say. He had a message, a wonderful message that he wanted to announce to all people. And because of that announcement, because of what he wanted to say, guess what? He was silent for 400 years. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, think about it this way. Just say you're in a room. Maybe we're over in the fellowship hall. We got, you know, 40, 50 people gathered there and everybody's talking, fellowshipping, and you have an announcement to make. Right? You get up in front, excuse me, excuse me. People, oh, yes, he's going to say something, you know. What happens? You wait. If the announcement's really important, maybe you're getting married, maybe you're having a baby, maybe whatever, and you want everybody to hear, what do you do? You wait until everybody's quiet. Right? And then you pause, and everybody's, well, what's he going to say? Because it's absolute silence. And when you speak, what? All of a sudden, people, wow, this is a big announcement. See, this is what God was doing. He's preparing the people's hearts for this glorious message of the coming of the Messiah. Wait till everybody's quiet. Then you give the message. See, this is what was going on in the Jewish minds. They were longing. They were longing to hear from God again. He hadn't spoken to them. 400 years had gone by. Now that may seem like a long time in our lives. In the scope of God, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's just like, you know, a couple minutes in God's time frame. A few moments, God was harnessing really their attention. That's kind of what it was. He was heightening the anticipation in their hearts. He wanted them to hear, his people, he wanted them to hear this greatest announcement that was going to come, that would really, the greatest announcement ever made in the history of the world. That the Messiah is here. That he's finally here. The silence is broken. And he says, I've got an announcement The announcement is really the first word of, of Matthew. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Are you kidding? That's the announcement? Yes. That's exactly what he's doing. The whole world for 400 years was waiting for this greatest announcement. It just seems weird that he would break the silence with a genealogy, doesn't it? Now, we have to understand why God does this. Why does God break the silence with a genealogy? We have to understand this, or else we're just going to be like every other typical American that thinks the Bible was written for us. See, this is a problem that people have with Scripture. They read the Bible, and they say, well, how does it apply to me? That's their first thing. That's not the first question you should ask when you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, you should say, well, who is Matthew writing to? And how does it apply to them? (laughs) Because that's the original intent of the author. When the Bible was written, it didn't have Americans in mind with our economy and with our worldview and all that. We just think everything revolves around us. Well, the Bible was written to us first. No, it was not. That's why we misinterpret so much of the Bible. That's why we miss the message that God has in the Scriptures. We try to put it into an American-only context. That doesn't work. Different age, different time, different culture. All those things are important to understand. And we end up messing up the message of the Bible because we read it through an American lens only. That's not how it was meant to be read. You have to go back and you have to understand, first of all, the original audience. Who was Matthew writing to? The reason that Matthew starts with this genealogy is because of his audience. 
And guess what? The audience wasn't us. <laughs> it wasn't Americans. His original audience loved this. When he started with the genealogy, they're like, whoa, yeah, this is all right. They were excited. They would have gobbled this up. If we lived in that day in Israel, you know, the number one website would be Ancestry.com. Okay, they were just so into their ancestry, into their lineages, the Jewish people. And that's who Matthew was writing to. They loved this stuff. It was their life. I mean, you know, we don't work that way here. Maybe it's a hobby for you. You know, you go in a toy bag and go back maybe to maybe your great-granddad or something. They would go back, great, 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 great. They wanted to know it all. That's how passionate they were about their ancestry. It wasn't just a hobby. It was their life. And when God starts out here, he starts off with the audience in mind, the Jewish mindset. Matthew is writing to Jews. And here's something we have to attune our heart to. Think about it. There's, there's four Gospels, right? Out of the four Gospels, only one starts with a genealogy. <laughs> only Matthew. That's the only one that starts with a genealogy. Why is that? The other three don't. Because they have a different audience. Mark, for example, who's he writing to? He's, he's writing to Romans. Soldiers, you know, Romans, power. That's his primary target. The Romans didn't know anything about Jewish culture, Jewish genealogy. They didn't care. They didn't know anything about the Jewish scripture. They didn't know anything about the promises that God had made of a coming Messiah. So Mark doesn't start with a Jewish genealogy. What does he do? He goes straight to the ministry of Jesus. Go right to the power. Jesus is an adult and he's doing miracles and everything's happened immediately. That's what he does. He's pointing out to the Romans, you know what? This is more than just a man. Rome was all about power. And, and Mark wanted them to understand that this one who is God has all the power. And he has come and he has made himself a servant to all. That's really the theme. And he served by laying down his life. That's what Mark wanted the Romans to understand. And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, you have to look at it through that lens. Does that make sense? It's first written to the Roman people. Specifically, the first century Roman people, then to us. Or take Luke, the Gospel of Luke. What did Luke do? What was he? He was a doctor. So Luke is writing to these intellectual Gentiles, intellectual Greeks, you could say, and they were people who were very big on every little detail of everything. They wanted to know everything. They were very intellectually driven. And he begins by telling them, hey, you know what? I'm an expert. I'm a doctor. I study facts for a living. And I have all the facts about the story of Jesus, the Messiah. And I've thoroughly examined them, Mark goes on to say, and he's re researched all this. And so he wants his audience to know what I'm about to tell you, you intellectual Greeks, is that all the facts about Jesus, this is all not something somebody just made up. It's not some made-up myth. It's something that I've checked out as a medical doctor, and I verify it. That's why Luke is so much into detail. Super detail. And he doesn't even get to the genealogy until a couple chapters into the book. He does bring it up, but he's super detailed. And because he's writing to the intellectual Greek audience, and the Greeks... They were always into their literature and their art and everything, and they, they, they were just always looking for this perfection and perfect man. And what Luke is trying to get them to understand is, I'll tell you about the only perfect man that there is. The only one. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message. And then you have the Gospel of John. Who's John written to? John's written to everybody, right? For God so loved the world, was his message. That's his targeted audience, the whole world. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And so John is writing to the world, and he wants them to know that the one who is over the world, all-powerful, supreme, the one who created the world, came into the world. And so he begins his gospel with what? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is the one who created the world, the whole world. And guess what? This, this one loves the world. This is the one who loves you. And he came into the world to reveal God to you. That's John's message. So if you don't read the Gospels in a way that they were intended to the original audience, it's very easy to look at them and go, well, they're, they're telling it's a conflict. You know, there's conflicts in Scripture. No, there's not. It's like when you you see an accident down here on, on McGarvey and Euclid, you know, which or Roosevelt, and they have a lot of them, actually. But, uh, you know, when you see them, and you have some witnesses, you go to talk to some people, what happened? Oh, this truck went through the intersection, you know, at 90 miles an hour and impaled the car. And you talk to somebody else, well, no, the truck wasn't really going fast, it was the car. Why? They're all looking at it from different angles. That's what the Gospels are. It's God's message coming at it from a different angle. They don't conflict. Matter of fact, they all line up. You can even get a harmony of the Gospels, and it puts everything right in chronological order, and you can read through it. But Matthew's here, his message is to tell them, here's this Messiah that was promised to you, the one that was going to come. These are people that knew the Old Testament. These are people that knew all of the prophecies about Jesus. These are people that they knew the line, they knew the lineage, they knew what God had said. And this is where and this is who the Messiah was going to be and where he was going to come from. And so you don't have to wonder what their first question would be when Matthew said, here's the Messiah. The announcement that God had arrived in this man, here's the Messiah, here's your Redeemer, Israel, the Jewish mindset, the first question that the Jews were going to ask, where is he from? Where is he from? They don't care what you can do. They don't care how much power you can wield. They, they, they don't care how well you can teach. They want to know what? Where are you from, Jesus? What's your lineage? Because over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, what was the message? He's going to come through what? The line of David. He's going to come through the line of Abraham. He's going to come through the line of Judah. Now you can imagine some guy comes up and says, well, I'm the Messiah. And they say, well, where are you from? You go, oh, I'm, I'm from Fred. I can't get out of here. Good try, right? That's not going to work. Because they knew their lineage. They don't want to know all the things that he's done. They don't want to know all the things that he can say or how he can teach until they know where are you from. And you can't make it up. These are facts that they had recorded. I mean, they make Ancestry.com look like a joke. Really. They were so into their lineage. They had everything written down. They had a deep understanding of their ancestors. Like I said, they just didn't ask, well, who was your granddaddy? They asked, who was your granddaddy's 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 granddaddy? And they just kept going back and back and back. They wanted to go way back. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. Why would they do this? Who cares? I mean, I don't know half of my, I don't even know probably a tenth of my family. I mean, I know I have some brothers and sisters that are still alive and, you know, some that have passed on, but you go beyond that, it's all blur. Because your ancestor, your descendants, determine what could be in their culture. It all depended on where you came from, where you could live, uh, who you could marry, what your profession would be. Think about that one. It all depended on your lineage. It, it depended, your lineage depended on whether you could buy property or not. That's how important it was. 
It was based on your ancestry, your heritage, your bloodline. And guess what? If you weren't from the right bloodline, you weren't going to buy that piece of property. Sorry. I mean, even your profession was called into question. You know, say you wanted to be a priest. You were going to be a priest. Hey, you wake up and say, God called me to be a priest. The first thing they're going to do is what? They're going to go back to your genealogy. And if you didn't come from the tribe of Levi, they're going to say, sorry, you don't have the right bloodline. You can't be a priest, period. End of discussion. You had to have the right bloodline. You had to be part of the tribe of Levi. In other words, you had to have Levi's genes. Thank you, thank you. I wondered if anybody would get that. I tried that on my wife yesterday. She was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I'd do that or not. But see, that's what we're talking about here. Your profession, everything that you lived for depended on your genealogy. So Matthew knows that, and he doesn't mess around with what Jesus did. He doesn't mess around with what he's going to teach and all that. What's he do? He, he goes right to the, the facts. Where did he come from? You couldn't make it up because it was all public. You can go down to the courthouse and look up Jesus' lineage. Just like, you know, you can go down and look up court documents today in our society. That's how well-known this was. They were wrote, written out in detail, very specific public documents. And this was for everybody to see. So no one could be underhanded or do something they're not supposed to do if they didn't have the right lineage. And that's why when Jesus' critics and, and his enemies, they tried to trash him, right? They tried to tarnish him, tried to speak down about everything that he was and everything that he did. The one thing they could not attack and discredit was his lineage because it was known fact. They never argued with where he came from as far as humanly speaking. Why? Because they've been down in the courthouse. They went down and checked him out. It's this guy telling the truth. They knew his genealogy. They knew his heritage. They knew the tree from which Jesus came. It was indisputable. Jesus' tree, his family Christmas tree, had an important purpose. The purpose was it locks him as a real person in our history. He's not a figment of our imagination. He was a real being that lived here on earth. God incarnate for 30-some years, lived perfect life without sin, and then gave up that life willingly, went to a cross and died for the sins of all those who would put their faith, their trust in the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, paid for their sins in full. It also helps us to see that he fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. God God says in the Old Testament, this is where he will be from. This is the line he's going to come through. I mean, all the prophecies, some 300 prophecies of Jesus that he fulfilled in his life. Think about that. It's kind of like God's fingers just pointing to Jesus saying, this is the one. 300 times. Don't miss it. This is the only one that meets all these credentials. He's from the line of David. They're saying, oh, he, he, you know, he, he doesn't have the credentials to be the Messiah. Does he have the family credentials? Can you really, can it really be Matthew's saying? Matthew's saying, yes, yes, everything lines up, everything checks out. Here's his lineage. He fulfills all the credentials that God said that he would have in his heritage. See, that's very important. If we don't get that, we miss the whole point. Now, we don't make that a big deal. We know grandpa and grandma, and that's about it. We stop there for the most part in our culture, but it wasn't so back then. And so it's important. His lineage serves a purpose because of the audience of Matthew. Well, secondly, Jesus' family tree not only serves an important purpose, but it has some interesting, let's say, ornaments on it. We see Jesus' family had some very, very interesting ornaments. It wasn't decorated with 
lights and tinsel and beautiful bulbs and expensive ornaments and all that stuff. His ornaments on his tree, uh, as I said before, is decorated with people. Ornaments of people. And Matthew tells us something important in verse 17. He says there's 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile of Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now why is that important? Because from David, or from Abraham to David, and from David to the exile, and from the exile to the Messiah, you know how much time is covered there? It's about 2,000 years in one verse. We don't get that. We look at that and go, okay, whatever that means. That's over 2,000 years, basically. He says this genealogy covers 2,000 years. Now that's important because what he is also saying is, I didn't put every name in the genealogy. He left some names out. This isn't everyone over that whole span of time, right? He didn't put in every name. I mean, if he would have put in every name, it would have been thousands upon thousands. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to read it. And what he's doing, he's saying, you know what? I picked out the ones that you really need to know about. That's what he did. Now, what's shocking is not the ones that he left out, beloved. What's shocking to me are the ones that he included in the genealogy. Because when you begin to understand who's in this list, you're talking some really crazy stuff. Some really major dysfunctional, major family issues with these people. And the reason that we need to understand it is because the Jews use their genealogy kind of like a resume. You know, when you go and you apply for a job and you put down your jobs of experiences, usually you don't put everything you've done throughout your entire life. You kind of hand pick it, right? So that the employer, the potential employer, will look at it and go, oh, that lines up with us. You know, if you're applying for an engineering job, it's probably not real important that you cut grass for Mrs. Jones across the street when you're in the fifth grade. Okay, you don't need that on your resume. And this is what is important here about this genealogy. You don't put every single thing in your resume. Well, he didn't put every single name in this genealogy. But on your resume, hopefully you put the things that you're proud of, right? Right? You don't want to say, yeah, you know, the, the job when I was in uh, high school, I got fired from four times. You don't put that in your resume. You don't want anybody to know about that. You sanitize it. So it looks, makes you look the best that you can look. Nothing wrong with that. You put the ones in front of them that you know are going to stick out so that they'll say, hey, you're hired. Matthew gives us this. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't sanitize this list. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't filter out all the, the dirtiness and the sinfulness and the nastiness of this family tree. As a matter of fact, he puts most of it in. Go figure. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. In fact, in the first paragraph, maybe you noticed, in the very first paragraph of this genealogy, if you notice there, by the names, there's four women named. Four women. There's five in total, because you get down to the end, and that's Mary. But there's four at the beginning. Guess what? They did not do that in this day. Back in this culture, you would never put somebody, a woman's name in, in the name of anything. I mean, the Jewish men would wake up every morning and say, thank God I am not a Gentile, and thank God I wasn't born a woman. I mean, that was their mentality. It was a daily prayer of thanksgiving. And so they're not going to put women in their genealogy, unless they're really, really, really spectacular and have status. And guess what? These four women do just the opposite. None of them are spectacular. None of them elevate the status of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you, you could actually make an argument it does the opposite. For instance, Rahab in verse 5. Rahab, what was her profession? Well, she was a, pro a prostitute. She ran a brothel in Jericho. By the way, she's Canaanite. She's not even a Jew. That's incredible that he would include her. For a woman to show up at all, 
But then the woman, Rahab, to show up, she's a prostitute. Matthew, what are you thinking? The Lord, what are you thinking? But it doesn't stop there. Do you know who Rahab's daughter-in-law was? She was the mother-in-law of Ruth. We see her in verse 5 as well. She marries Boaz. And she is the daughter-in-law to Rahab, the Canaanite. He has a daughter-in-law who's also not a Jew. She's a what? She's a Moabite. You remember where the Moabites came from? Remember Lot? (laughs) The Old Testament, Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed by God. And they go up into the mountains and he has his two daughters with him. And they said, you know what? God destroyed everybody. We're never going to be able to find a man to carry out our family name. And so what did they do? They got their father drunk so that he would impregnate them. Unbelievable. This is in Jesus' lineage. You can't even believe that God would put it in Scripture. And yet he wants us to know. And who are the two sons that come out of those two daughters of Lot? The Ammonites and the Moabites. If you were an Ammonite or a Moabite, guess what? When people saw you, where are you from? Oh, from Ammon. Oh, you're a child of incest. Think about that. The rest of your life, that's all you hear. That's the stigma that's on you. Child of incest. Guess what? Jesus has both Canaanite and Moabite blood coursing through his veins. He was Jewish, but he also had Gentile blood coursing through his body. That's incredible to me. See, he not only shed his blood for the world, but guess what? He got his blood from the world. Matthew's showing us that God's not a racist. God doesn't play favorites. Matthew's showing us that God came for everyone. God came into the world to everyone. That's what he wants us to see here. Jesus was a mixed race Messiah, if you think about it. We live in a world where we get all caught up with all this crazy stuff, races and all this gender and everything else. Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, our Redeemer, was of mixed race. He had Gentile blood in his lineage. He had Moabite blood. He had Canaanite blood. He had Jewish blood. But he was a mixed race Messiah. He has come for the world. Remember, he's also told to be, he's going to be the light to the Gentiles. He just didn't come to save the Jews. He came to save the world. Important message. Then you have Bathsheba. <laughs> you say, well, I didn't see her name there. Well, it doesn't mention her by name. <laughs> kind of slick. Look at verse 6. It doesn't mention her by name. Everyone would have known. It says, Jesse, the father of David, King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just say Bathsheba? Why would he say it in that, those terms? Why wouldn't he just say, oh, and his mother was Bathsheba? Because he wanted our minds, he wanted the Jewish mind in the first century to go straight to the story. You know, <laughs> you know the story of Uriah. You remember? Oh, you guys think King David was all that, right? You remember what he did. Don't put him on a pedestal. You remember how he stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? You remember how he had adultery? He committed adultery with her? You remember how he impregnated her? And he had to cover it up? And how did he do it? He, he killed her husband, Uriah? That's why he puts Uriah's wife. He doesn't just say Bathsheba. Because he wants the Jewish mind to go through the whole story again. Remind them. And livid cover, color that both David and Bathsheba's tainted blood ran through the the veins of the Lord Jesus. That's what he wants us to understand. And if that's not bad enough, Matthew includes one other woman there, besides Mary, and that's Tamar. You go back to verse 3. This is really bad, the story of Tamar. I'm not even going to get into the details. I'll just give you a basically thumbnail sketch. Tamar loses her husband, 
And she goes away to live because she's upset. She lives in a different town. And her father-in-law, she learns, is coming to town. And she goes out and she hides and she makes herself out to be a prostitute. She decorates herself, disguises herself. And her father-in-law comes strolling into town, and guess what? She propositions him. And he doesn't recognize her. He ends up sleeping with a prostitute. All of a sudden, Tamar is pregnant. And the father-in-law finds out about it. When he gets back home, they all say, Oh, you know what? We heard your daughter-in-law is in the other town. She's pregnant. She's obviously a prostitute. She's pregnant. And what does he say? Kill her. Kill her. She doesn't deserve to live. And then she comes along and she's able to prove that actually the father of her child is him. <laughs> Crazy story. And in shame, he has to bow his head and confess, yeah, you know what? The child is mine. Why in the world is this in here? <laughs> Why? Because Matthew wants us, he wants his readers to understand that the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus is the product of this liaison. He doesn't want us to get away from it. He doesn't want to hide it. He wants us to understand that, he wants us to see that Jesus came through all of these people. Why in the world is he putting all these tainted female skeletons in the lineage here. Why does, why does he bring up all these bad characters? These ladies, it's just wow. It's very simple. Matthew's paving the way. He's paving the way for who? Mary. He's paving the way for Mary. He's setting it up. See, this is the one who was betrothed but gets pregnant outside of her betrothed husband, Joseph. What's he doing? He's paving the way. It's incredible to see. A lot of times we just skip over this and go straight to verse 18 and we, we don't understand the backstory here. Of course, it's not just the woman. This, that's shocking that they would even include the woman. But then you have people like Abraham listed here. We know what he was all about, right? He was just downright liar. He lied to save his own skin. Gives away his wife twice to save his own skin. Everybody knows about Abraham. Abraham's a liar, he's a cheater, and he gives his wife away. Not much of an A-grade husband in my, my mind. And then you, you have David in the list there. The awesome David, he's so wonderful. By the way, he broke three of the Ten Commandments. Number 10, that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. Number 7, not sleep with another man's wife. And then he breaks number 6, he's a murderer. Wow. Don't forget him. <laughs> Don't forget David. We want to, Matthew wants us to understand he's there. And then you got Jacob in verse 2. Come through the line of Jacob. Jacob, his name means deceiver. He was a deceptive character. That's all he did. He deceived people. He deceived almost all the way to the very end until the Lord gets a hold of his heart. Most of his life was built on deception. He lies and he lies and he tells more lies and lies and lies. He lies to get the birthright of Esau, his brother. He lies to get more of the family wife from his father-in-law. He lies and he just cheats people. He deceives people to get what he wants. That's Jacob. What about Judah? Judah, verse 2 there. Line of Judah. Judah was a liar. He was greedy. He was a philanderer. The story I just told about the daughter-in-law and the father-in-law. Who was the father-in-law? Judah. That's who this is. But, and we have another story about Judah. You know who the youngest brother of Judah was? Joseph. Remember? Remember the story of Joseph? They got ticked off at Joseph because he was daddy's favorite. He gave him a coat of many colors, and the brothers get ticked off. And they said, you know what? This spoiled little brat, he's, 
He deserves to die. Let's just kill him. And so they get together, and they're going to kill him. And they determine he's going to die. And what does Judah do? The oldest one. What does Judah do? He's the oldest brother. He says, you know what? I've got to take charge of this situation. And he says, well, if we just kill him, we don't really get anything out of that. Uh, what do we have to gain in that? Why don't we get some money for him? Why don't we sell him? <laughs> Let's sell him, get the money, and then we'll just lie to dad and say that he's dead. And that's what they do. That's, that's the guy Judah. Don't you think that you might just not want to put somebody like that in your genealogy and highlight them the way he's highlighted here? I mean, you can go on and on. Solomon, who's in the genealogy, I mean, he was a womanizer. 700 wives. <laughs> 700! 300 concubines. I don't know how he was the wisest person in the world. I just can't get that. He had a thousand women in his harem. Poor guy didn't have a chance. You know, idolatry in Israel was at all time high during his reign. You can go through every one of these names and find something like this. Even with all their dirtiness, all their brokenness, all their flaws, all their failures, they're listed there. God put them there in the lineage of our Lord on the tree of Christ, His family tree. They're all part of the ornaments, decoration. Do you have a favorite ornament? You know, when you decorate your tree every year, sometimes family gives you ornaments and you keep them. I know my wife has several, but it's always not the ones that look the nice in you know look the nicest in families. You know, you, you ask somebody to have a beautifully decorated tree, and you say, "Well, what's your favorite ornament?" And they, usually they'll point to some little ornament that's down in the corner that's been broken several times, it's glued back together, and it just doesn't look as nice as the other ones. But that's their favorite. They're ornaments because of what they represent, right? Not necessarily how they look. See, the ornaments on Jesus' Christmas tree are you and me. They represent who Jesus came for. That's the whole point. It's not just that Jesus came through these people as part of his lineage, but you have to understand Jesus came for these people. He came for these people. And all the, the brokenness and all the sinfulness and all the disgust and all the family drama and all the family destruction and dysfunction, that was all part of Jesus' history too that we don't always talk about. And the reason Matthew shares all this, inspired by the Lord himself, by God himself, is there's only one who can come through this kind of family and rise above it. Only one. The only one who is holy, the only one who is righteous, the only one who is perfect. And the Bible tells us that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In spite, listen, in spite of his family, in spite of his lineage, he rises up. And all these people represent the people that he has come for. They really represent us. Because if we really get deep into our lives and the lives of our families, if we want to be honest, it looks just like Jesus's, to some extent. And yet, he puts them on the tree. He makes them an ornament. Why? Because they're precious. They're valuable. Not because of how they look or because of what they've done, but because of who they represent and the story behind them. The people Jesus came from really represent all the people that he came for. That's me, that's you. He came from a long line of sinners. Yet being perfect so that he could save a long line of sinners. The third thing here 
is that there are many intentional messages here in this genealogy. Just four of them real quick. First of all, I think the message to the Jewish mindset in that day, and even today, in our day, what does, what does this text want us to hear? It's time to get off our high horse. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you think back in the culture back then, this is who Matthew is writing to. He's writing to all these Jews, especially the Jewish leaders. They tended to be very judgmental, very religious people, very self-righteous. They always look down at everybody else, thinking, you know, they're all that. They're God's chosen people. And Matthew's saying, get off your high horse. But you know what? As Christians, I've seen it. We do the same thing. Especially this time of year. I've heard people say as they go through the grocery line, in the other line across the way or whatever, and the clerk says, Happy Holidays. I've heard him say, It's Merry Christmas! I'm thinking, Whoa! <laughs> I mean, I'll usually say Merry Christmas, but I don't say it in a corrective tone. You say, Well, they should know. Well, yeah. And there's a way to share that. I mean, think about it. If I showed up, or if a complete stranger showed up at your job, and started to correct you, how would you feel? I don't think you'd like that. I don't even know what your job is. And yet we do that all the time. Nothing wrong with saying Merry Christmas to people, but you don't have to say it in a condescending way. You don't have to say it in an angry way. There's a lot better way to show the love of Christ, to show them that you care, that you want to encourage them, than to correct them like they're your child. Well, secondly, the past or the legacy you received isn't as important as the legacy you leave. The heritage you received isn't as important as the legacy you leave. This is what Matthew wants us to understand. Guess what? You didn't choose who you were born to. None of us did. You didn't choose the family. You're like, well, if I could have, I would have chosen a different one. Well, maybe so, but you didn't have that choice. You didn't choose the heritage that you receive. And it, it, the heritage you receive isn't as important as the legacy you leave. Jesus was born into a rotten heritage in a lot of different ways. And the message is your family doesn't stop you. Your family doesn't stop you from being who God called you to be, who he made you to be. Don't use that as an excuse because you didn't even get to choose which family you were going to be part of. You were just born. But you know what? You do get to choose what you're going to do with your life from this point forward. You do get to choose the kind of legacy you're going to leave and the destination you're going to. You get to choose that. God's put that choice in front of you even here this morning. The Bible says if you choose Christ, you choose life. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, I pray that you will. He's the only one that can save you from your sin. This church can't save you. The trappings of Christianity can't save you. The guy over in Rome can't save you. The only one the Bible says can save you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives you the opportunity to come to him and say, you know what, Lord, I've been trying it my way too long. It hasn't worked out too well. I, give me the faith. Help me to believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do whatever it takes. Beg if you have to. Ask Him for salvation. Ask Him to save you. Turn from your sin to the Savior. That's what He wants. Then, then you can leave a legacy 
a real legacy. Well, here's the, the third thing. God uses imperfect people for his perfect purposes. Aren't you glad for that? I am. Man, I am so glad for that. You don't know the, the, the Sundays that I've had to get up here and preach and came out of a fresh argument with my wife or whatever, and Lord, I am not worthy. And he goes, no kidding, you idiot. Just get up there and do what I called you to do. I didn't call you to be perfect. You see, when, when, when pastors start pretending like they are perfect, you got a problem, a big one. Or if a church thinks it's the only church or whatever the mentality is. No, we're all imperfect people. And you say, well, God, why does God have to use imperfect people? Because that's all he's got. <laughs> the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hear this, our sinfulness does not stop God's sovereignty. Our sinfulness does not stop God's sovereignty. All of Jesus' ancestry on his family tree, all of the, the sinfulness, the disgusting stories, it didn't stop the sovereignty of God. God says this is what's going to happen. And guess what? It happened. And the last thing here I'll leave with you this morning is Jesus came through sinners and he came for sinners. Jesus came through sinners for sinners. Jesus was born to sinners. He lived with sinners. <laughs> he worked with sinners. He walked with sinners. He talked with sinners. He even served God alongside of sinners. But he was not tainted with sin because he was God. He came through all of that for us. We need to remember that today. When you come to Christ, when you believe and you trust in the only perfect one, Jesus the Messiah, the only one who is the Redeemer, the only one who is the Savior, verse 21 of Matthew, it tells us, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's how he introduces this Jesus. He's not just the Messiah. He's the one who came to save. He's the Savior of the world. He came to save people from their sins. And when you come to Christ and you trust in Him and you rely and surrender totally on Him and to Him, Paul says that you're grafted into His tree. You're grafted into the family of God. You may not have the lineage. Probably not many of us here this morning are Jewish. And yet, you're an ornament on His tree. You're not perfect. Guess what? You're broken. You're flawed. You have failures. But guess what? You take all that to Christ. My message is trust Christ. Look to Christ. Put your sin on Christ. And God will save you. He will redeem you. He will make you perfect in His sight. He will graft you into His tree. You will be part of His Christmas tree. This genealogy tells us why Christmas came. We get to testify that Christmas is the greatest celebration. The greatest celebration. Why? Because we get grafted into the Christmas tree of Christ. We remember that it's not the baby Jesus in the manger, beloved. We don't just celebrate a baby Jesus. We celebrate a, a Christ that was a man who lived and died a perfect life and yet gave up his life to die on a cruel cross, horrific death, and to take upon himself all the sins of those who would ever put their faith, their trust in him. And in exchange for their sin, what does he give us? He gives us his perfect righteousness. We give, us, we give him our sin, and he gives to us his perfect righteousness.
See, if there never was a baby Jesus in the manger, there never would have been Jesus the Savior on the wooden cross. It's through the birth of Christ that leads us to the celebration of the, the, the risen Savior of the empty tomb. And I pray that this holiday, this Christmas season, that you'll refocus just a little bit and realize that there's a lot of messed up people. Some of us are some of them. <laughs> and we need to be patient, we need to be kind, we need to be gracious, but we also need to be firm and we need to be clear with the gospel message. Now's the time of year to grab some of these tracks in the back and hand them out. And you go out to dinner, give a little bit more than maybe the normal person would give as a tip, but slip a track in there. Let them know that there's more to life than just lights and tinsel. There's a Savior who came and lived and died. If you'll put your faith, your trust in Him, you can have that newness of life and that forgiveness of sin as well. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Lord, we thank You for the message of Matthew through this genealogy. I know we didn't go in all through 47 names, but we'd be here all day if we did. But Lord, we thank You for the ones that we brought to the surface. And Lord, they truly are broken people. It kind of, in a way, makes us feel a little better about ourselves, knowing that, wow, we, we don't have to be perfect. No. As a matter of fact, none of us are perfect. And God says, if you know what, you want to serve me, you want to love me, you want me to save you, that's, that's the first step. Admitting your imperfection. Admitting your need to be saved. Admitting your sinfulness before a holy God. We all have it. It's obvious. And Lord, I pray that even today, if there's someone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that, Lord, you would confirm in their heart they need to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior. Help me to trust in Christ with everything I have, everything I am. Help me to forsake all others and follow him. And if you do that, if you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God will save you. And what that means, he will transform you. He will change you. He will give you desires that are pleasing to him. He will give you purpose, plan to honor him with your life. And Father, we pray as believers this time of year that we'll be faithful to pray for, to minister to those who are downtrodden, those who may not look like us, those who may have less than us, those who are the crazy uncle or the crazy cousin in our family. Help us be patient with them and loving to them because we were one of them. <laughs> Maybe some of us still are. So Lord, I pray that as we go out and we share the gospel message that we will see fruit from your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.